Welcome to the Sonogenetics Podcast. I'm Patrick Short. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Sonogenetics, and we're here in Cambridge with a really excellent guest, uh, someone I've been looking forward to talking to for a while, and that's Nick Sorrow. Nick has had a very incredible career. He originally studied business and journalism, but when his sons were diagnosed with a rare disease called Alcaptanuria, AKU, or the black bone disease, uh, he decided to quit his job and dedicated himself to finding a cure. Uh, so Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, really excited to tell your story to a wider audience. Um, so would you mind just taking us back to the beginning, how you found out about your first son's diagnosis, uh, and then what led you to decide to quit your job and dedicate your life to this? Sure. So yeah, I mean, it all started for me in October 2000 when our first son, Julian, was born. And we brought him back from the clinic, and it was a Sunday, and we were changing his nappies, and we noticed that they'd gone red-black. Um, so we called an emergency doctor who came along and tested for blood and couldn't find any. So he scratched his head and looked around and asked us what had we been eating that day, and it so happened we'd had some red cabbage. So he said it was the dye right. from the red cabbage entering the breast milk, then entering the baby, and then coming out of the urine. So we really didn't believe that was possible. Um, so next day, on the Monday, we went to see our GP, and he took it very seriously, and he sent off for a whole bunch of tests at Great Ormond Street, and after a few weeks, it came back with this diagnosis of Alcaptanuria, or AKU, as we call it. And um, it was a disease that we'd never heard about. I mean, it's ultra-rare. It affects about one person in maybe half a million, or maybe wow. one person in a quarter of a million. So really on the ultra-rare side of the spectrum. And the first thing he said is, whatever you do, don't go back and search for it on the internet. Right. Which is exactly what we did. Of course. And we were very alarmed by um, what we came across. We came across, uh, like, there was a Yahoo group of patients, and they were just kind of exchanging stories about their joint replacements and the, the pain they were going through and having to become jobless and what kind of pain relief they were using. And you know, the, the effect on the mood and everything. So it, it was pretty shocking. Um, and then what happened is we went to see a specialist at Great Ormond Street and he said, look, there's nothing you can do. Um, when they're children, they'll be okay. The pain will start in adulthood and that's when the joints will start to deteriorate. But there really is nothing you can do. And through my um, internet searches, I had met um, a patient called Robert Gregory who lived in Liverpool. And Robert had just set up the AKU Society with a doctor called Dr. Ranganath, who is a metabolic consultant at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. And so I joined them and we set up the AKU Society. And um, then my second child in 2003, Daniel, was diagnosed. And that's when I really kind of realized I need to do something about right. this. So could you tell us a little bit more about AKU? So my understanding is it's a recessive disorder. Um, just in case people don't know what that is, would you mind explaining that and maybe how it was explained to you when it was first diagnosed? So AKU is a monogenic disorder. And by that, it means that it's a single gene. Uh, so we have thousands, tens of thousands of genes, and it's a single one which um, has a mutation. And in the case of my children, it's a gene called the HGD gene, which codes for an enzyme or a protein called homogentisate 
one two dioxygenase, and that enzyme. <laughs> Can you spell that? <laughs> yeah, and that enzyme breaks down a substance called homogentisic acid. So because of their mutation, the enzyme even doesn't form properly or doesn't form at all. So they can't break down this homogentisic acid. And that accumulates in the body at 2,000 times the normal rate. Now, most of it gets excreted in the urine, which is why the urine goes red-black, because the homogentisic acid goes red-black in contact with air. Um, and but a certain amount stays in the body, and it tends to um, really attach to cartilage and bone, and it then goes black. And that process is called ochronosis. And as life develops, um, it damages the cartilage and bone more and more, and eventually the cartilage becomes four times tougher than plastic. So it loses all wow. its kind of suppleness and everything, which means that it starts to become brittle, and bits start to break away, and eventually patients have bone rubbing against bone. So one patient described it as, having, uh, as if having barbed wire in his joints. Um, so it's a recessive gene, which means that I'm a carrier, my wife's a carrier, we don't actually have it because we also have a good copy of the gene. And there is a one in four chance that each child will get the bad copy from both parents. And so it's rather unfortunate that right. both the children have actually got you know, the, the, the malfunctioning AKU gene. Yeah. Right, so you have this minor, so make sure I understand right, you have this basically a build-up of uh, this, it's an acid effectively, um, and then over time it causes all sorts of problems throughout the body. Um, so, okay, so just to take us back to the, you founded the AKU Society with, um, with a few of your colleagues, and you started to think immediately about a cure, or what was the what was the goal there? So we wanted um, to work on a cure or a treatment. We were told at the time that there was a potential drug being developed, but that it wouldn't be ready for years. And so I, again, I, I kind of asked around, searched a bit, and came across a researcher in the U.S. at the National Institutes of Health, which is the big, you know, kind of federal research agency in in the U.S. just outside Washington. And the doctor it was called um, Dr. Bill Gall, and he was studying a drug called nitizinone, which is, has had quite a surprising history because nitizinone was originally developed as a weed killer in the 80s right. by a huge conglomerate um, called ICI, Imperial Chemical Industries or something along the lines. And, um, and the way it was developed as a weed killer was that there was a scientist at ICI who noticed in his garden um, that he had a, a plant called the Australian bottle brush plant and around that plant there were no weeds and he thought right. that's surprising <laughs> and so he analyzed the plant and he managed to isolate uh, the substance and synthesized it as nitizinone as a weed killer um, unfortunately it didn't work very well as a weed killer because it tended I believe to kill the plants as well as the weeds so right. pretty commercializable however an analog of nitizinone, mesotrione um, um, is the, one of the most sold weed killers in the world and you can buy it at your local gardening store. Um, so anyway, and he also found that um, nitizinone worked on the tyrosine metabolic pathway. So tyrosine is an amino acid, it's one of the building blocks of protein and when it gets broken down in the body that's when there's a certain step and an enzyme missing and the homogentisic acid um, builds up. But what nitizinone does is that it basically blocks the breakdown of tyrosine in plants. Okay. Right. 
And so he thought if it does that in plants, it should probably work in the same way in humans, because right. humans also break down tyrosine. And so then he thought there is this rare disease called hereditary tyrosinemia type 1, which is a very nasty rare disease that kills children by age 2, which is just one step down from AKU. And he thought maybe nitizinone can actually treat tyrosinemia type 1. Right. So he got in touch with some researchers in Sweden, and they had these little babies with tyrosinemia type 1 who were going to die. They basically would die of liver cancer by age 2. And they literally mixed up the weed killer in a bowl and fed it to these children. Right. And the children lived and thrived. So it's a miracle weed killer, basically, with very few side effects. Because it works on the same metabolic pathway as AKU, Dr. Bill Gahl, the guy at the National Institutes of Health, thought maybe it can be used to treat AKU. So he then did some studies, and he did a study on 40 patients from 2006 to 2008 or 9, 20 on the drug, 20 off the drug, but that failed. Right. And we, because they couldn't prove that it worked, even though the patients were raving about it. And so what we did, um, because we believe the drug does work, um, we've proven in an animal model, a mouse model of the disease, that it works incredibly well. We believe that it was a problem with the design of their clinical trial. So in the US, they hadn't recruited enough patients. Right, only 20 people, you said. 20 right on, 20 off. It didn't last long enough, only three years, and they only looked at one evaluation criteria, which was hip rotation. And obviously, the disease affects people very differently. Some it's the hips, some it's the spine, elbows, whatever. So they proved nothing. And that's why we then raised some funds. Uh, we raised overall um, 11 million euros to do a series of clinical trials on a much larger scale. Right. And that's what we're working on now. Was Talk me through some of those conversations with the funders. Did you often hear from them, you already had this trial in the US that failed, you're wasting your time, or did they understand the way you all did that there, there, you needed more data or you needed more time to do it right? That's right, yes. I mean, the difficulty was not so much with the funders, but with the company that owns the drug. Because after the US trial failed, uh, they said, look, this is just too difficult. Right. Uh, you know, to do a large study on such an ultra-rare disease uh, will be costly, um, and that they thought they would not make their money back. You know, they're a business, that's how they operate. Um, but what we had done with the AKU Society, the patient group, and with Professor Ranganath and another professor called Professor Jim Gallagher in Liverpool, is we put all the building blocks in place to be able to do a much more effective and sophisticated trial. So uh, we developed, as I said, an animal model of the disease from which we raised half a million pounds from the big lottery fund to do that animal right. model. And when we fed the, um, the mice uh, the drug at birth, they didn't develop any symptoms of AKU. And if we fed it halfway through life, it completely stopped the evolution of the disease. And we also funded what's called a natural history study, which is where you study patients but without giving them a drug. And this allowed Professor Ranganath to develop uh, what is called a severity score index, which measures the impact of the disease on all the different parts of the body. And you can then make a score out of that. And you can then re-measure every year, and you can see whether the score's going up, or whether it's stable, or whatever. And that's how you can track the evolution of the disease. Right, so rather than just a single thing, I think you mentioned hip rotation, you can get a, a really comprehensive picture of how is this... Uh 
potential treatment affecting every patient individually. That's absolutely right. And once we had all those building blocks in place, we went back to see the company and they said, yeah, we think there's a chance it might work. And they got on board and provided um, some of the funding towards right. the 11 million you know, euros. Um, and so we've now finished. So it was a seven year program. We got um, six million of those euros came from the European Commission because the EU can think on a, on a continent-wide scale when it comes to rare diseases and right. can provide the level of financing that national governments just don't. Um, and it was a seven-year program, and first of all, we did what's called a dose-finding study on 40 patients, and that was to find what dose would be best to use. And then that dose, um, 10 milligrams of the drug mitisinone, was then used in a five-year um, much larger study, what's called a phase three efficacy study, on 138 patients, half on the drug, half off the drug, and uh, using that severity score index. And that all officially finished in January this year. So now the data is being analyzed and we should know in a few months time, you know, at least we'll be able to tell publicly whether it was successful or not. Right. So, so I think you said a couple months away from knowing the results. How, how do you feel? I mean, you've done a decade of work leading up to this. Do you feel, are you excited? Are you nervous? A little bit of both? I'm very nervous. Um, I mean, I believe that the drug works. Um, the patients were really saying it was changing their lives. And in the UK, um, people have been also able to access the drug in what's called an off-label manner. Um, by going to the National AKU Centre that we set up at Liverpool Hospital. And the data from that shows that the drugs work. Right. You know, shows that the drug works, sorry. Um, but proving that in a large, randomised, European-wide trial is potentially more difficult. Right. You know? So I believe it works. I'm very optimistic about the results. But as with all medical research, you never know until you you've seen the data because there might be something that we just haven't thought of. And if it does go through, though, this means not just patients in the UK can get access through the study at Liverpool, but it should be available across the European Union. Is that right? That's right. So um, if the study is positive, um, the company will then hopefully apply to the European Medicines Agency for what's called a marketing authorization, which is a license to sell the drug. And the European Medicines Agency will then look at the data for, I think, at least a year, you know, kind of go over all the data and ask, you know, really, really stringent questions and everything. And then if it approves it, um, the company will then uh, be able to sell it across Europe, but first will have to get approval from the reimbursement agencies in each country that they will reimburse it. So it's still, you know, it's still a while. And that just showed me how long the development process for drugs, how long it actually is, because it's right. very linear, linear. You can't do your efficacy trial before you've done your dose trial. You can't do your dose trial before having tested in healthy volunteers. You can't do that before having tested in animals. You know, it's one thing after the next. Right. And so it's very linear, which is why drug development takes so long. So for, for people who might be listening to this who either themselves have a rare condition or maybe one of their family members do, uh, what were you expecting at the beginning of this that has been different? Would you offer any advice to, to them on how, you know, if they want to do something like this, what's, uh, what they have in store? Uh, well, first of all, to be tenacious and patient. Um, tenacious because this is a lifelong journey. Um, I remember meeting somebody 
from Eurodis, the European Organization of Rare Diseases, a few years ago, and she said the fight never stops. You know, even once your drug has been authorized, even when patients are having it, you still have to need, you still need to keep on campaigning and advocating for your patients and all that, because things can still go the other way. You know, so you need a lot of tenacity and a lot of patience because this is a long game. You don't develop a new drug in a couple of years. You need at least a decade. So while all this was happening, you also founded another organization called Find a Cure, which I, I think is an incredible organization. I think it'd be great if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about that and what led you to start Find a Cure. Sure. Um, so um, I was regularly being contacted by parents of children with rare diseases, with other rare diseases, uh, for whom there was no patient group. And uh, they would say, my child's just been diagnosed with this rare disease. I've heard of what you've done with AKU. What do I need to do to set up my own patient group and really advocate for my children? And so um, rather than just answer in a piecemeal fashion to one group this week, another group next week, I decided to set up a new charity called Find a Cure, uh, which would help all these early stage patient groups. So what Find a Cure does is provide um, training to patient groups, um, particularly to what I call kitchen table patient groups. Right. You know, mum and dad around the kitchen table, kind of wondering what to do. And so at Find a Cure, we do a number of things to train them. We do workshops on all kinds of issues, some on how to fundraise, um, how to do a clinical trial, how to set up a scientific advisory board, how to work with industry. Because what I realized uh, was that uh, all the challenges we face are actually quite similar with other right. rare diseases. The diseases are very different in themselves. AKU is very different to a disease like Alstrom syndrome or progeria or whatever. Very different in the symptoms and all that. But the challenges you face as a patient group are the same. It's lack of knowledge, lack of scientific research, um, difficulty access funding, marginalization, isolation. And that's why these drugs are called, and these diseases are called orphan diseases, because right. they're orphaned from society, orphaned from the medical profession, and kind of or orphaned from politics and everything, really. Um, so I set up Find a Cure, and um, we really found that there was a, a lot of need, you know. So another thing we actually do through Find a Cure is what's called a peer mentoring scheme. And this is when, um, you know, more established patient groups or experts in, say, the media or whatever, are buddied up with uh, mentees who might be some of these new patient groups that are setting up for a whole year, and they provide them with advice and with, you know, kind of, you know, guidance and all that and what they need to do. So, for instance, last year I was mentoring a group called Annabelle's Challenge, uh, which works on vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a really nasty disease um, where um, veins and arteries can just spontaneously rupture. And the guy I was mentoring, Jared, absolutely incredible, really entrepreneurial, has just gone on in leaps and strides and all that. And now he is mentoring another group himself right. this year. You know. So the idea is really to kind of build um, this network. Um, and what also Find a Cure does is work on what we call drug repurposing or repositioning, uh, which is kind of what we did with AKU. So when you reposition a drug, you basically take a drug that's used for one disease and you prove it can be used for another disease because most drugs have a variety of effects on the body. So we showed, um, well, we've been showing that the drug which is used for tyrosinemia type 1 can be used for AKU. That is repositioning. And the reason it's good is that it means you don't have to do all the stuff like toxicology and all that kind of stuff that you have with a new drug 
because it's already known from its use in the other disease. And, um, you know, if you just look at very common drugs uh, like propranolol, which is a beta blocker, which is very widely used uh, for heart problems, it's also used for migraines, um, it's got potential for post-traumatic stress disorder, for social anxiety, for all kinds right. of other disorders, you know. And that's fantastic. And so that's what we've been uh, really um, campaigning for at Find a Cure, is the repositioning of drugs for rare diseases. Right, and it seems to me like an incredibly cost-effective way to do it because you've presumably already proved that it's safe in people because if it's being prescribed for one condition, you know, you understand the side effects. And so then you can jump, can you jump straight to the second phase of clinical trials where you're actually testing if it works or if it doesn't? Uh, that's right, yes. I mean, um, I suppose the difficulty that you get with most drug repositioning is that those drugs have gone off patent. So when a drug company develops a drug, they put a patent on it, and that means they can then have exclusivity to sell it for a number of years and make their money back. And at the end of the patent, um, it becomes what's called generic, which means that other companies can produce it, and the cost just plummets. Um, so no company then has an incentive to develop it, again, for another disease. You know, And right. that's why you have to think of quite innovative funding models, um, such as the idea of a social impact bond, which the CEO of Finacure, Rick Thompson, has been looking into, um, to manage to develop them. So that's the complication. It's, it's, it's a case of market failure, fundamentally. Right. You have uh, conditions that collectively affect a huge fraction of the population, right? It's probably one in 20 or one in 15 people that have a rare condition, but each one itself is so rare that no, no one is, I, I guess, financially incentivized to develop treatments for it. Is that an accurate yeah, way of putting it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, that, that is the problem. And, um, and the re one of the reasons things have changed, but not so much for drug repositioning, but for just drug development for rare diseases, is that the U.S. passed a law in 1984 called the Orphan Drug Act, and the European Commission passed the law in 2000, uh, also an Orphan Drug Act, which gives incentives for industry to develop drugs for rare diseases. So, for instance, even if their patent runs out, once they get marketing authorization, they then get a number of years, like up to 10 or 11 years of exclusivity, depending on the country, where only right. they can sell it, you know, and it allows them to make their money back. But that doesn't really work necessarily well for generic drugs. Right, so once it's already gone off, then there's no going it's, it's back. It's more difficult to actually um, adhere to it. And I guess there are also other challenges around cost, right? If it's, um, if it's only going to treat, in the case of AKU, you said one person in about every half a million. So mm. in, in the whole country here, maybe 100 or 150 people. Maximum. Right. So we know, I think, of 95 in the UK. Um, so there's probably more out there. But it's, it's I mean, I suppose AKU um, has the advantage of the urine going black, um, so right. a lot of our patients get diagnosed at birth, although not that many overall, about a third get diagnosed at birth, and um, some get diagnosed much later in life, and some about halfway through life when they start to develop really bad symptoms. And the reason is that um, when the kids are born and their urine goes black, sometimes the doctor just said, there's nothing to worry about, your child is right. fine, so the parents stop thinking about it. Uh, other times, they get a diagnosis, but they don't tell the child. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why often um, children don't know, you know, that they have the illness. And even when they get to adulthood, we had one patient who went for a joint replacement, and the surgeon opened up and saw it was all black. 
and changed the joints, but didn't tell the patient, you know, which is just shocking. Right. And the patient only found out on their second joint replacement when the, the surgeon the, the, said the new surgeon went in and saw what was yeah. happening. So, yeah, it's difficult. Right. So I guess Find a Cure and other organizations like that can help bring people up to speed in the way that you suggested earlier. Everybody doesn't have to reinvent the wheel or learn these things yeah. kind of fresh themselves. Yeah. Great. So I know we're um, running out of time here. I just thought I'd kind of recap and explain why I think your story is remarkable. I think for, for really two reasons. First is that I think it shows what can be accomplished from a group of very dedicated people. I think you said earlier you have to be tenacious and patient. And I think that uh, the amount of time it's taken and, and also the probably incredible number of challenges you faced along the way um, I think is really remarkable. And then second, I think, is how important it is to bring different groups to the table. So it's you know individual patient advocates, patient groups, but also the companies, the uh, funding groups like the European Commission, the NHS, who's going to ultimately deliver this in the UK. Uh, so it seems to me like actually orchestrating all of these different groups that have uh, quite different roles to play, but somehow people like you getting them um, and Dr. Ranganath getting them kind of aligned in the right direction is, uh, is pretty remarkable. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's just uh, yeah, amazing to think about how we could replicate this and how we could find other people out there like yourself and these other groups to take things that might have market failures and actually um, make something amazing out of it. So hopefully you hear good news within a month, uh, yes. two months. Um, we'll definitely keep everybody updated on the story. Um, so thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, as always, you can send us any feedback, any questions you have uh, to podcast at sonogenetics.com. We do re read and respond to every email. If you like the podcast, we'd love it if you could share it with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find it. And then finally, feel free to visit our website, sonogenetics.com, to learn more about some of the research projects we're running and other topics through our blog. We'd like to say thank you very much, Nick. Could you let people know where they can find you or more information about what you're doing, whether it's Twitter, your website, anything like that? Sure. So um, two websites, one for the AKU Society, which is uh, www.akusociety.org. And then for Find a Cure, it's www.findacure.org.uk. Great, wonderful. Thanks again, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.